Hey, Dan. Hey, Riley. How are you, Dan? Ooh, Riley, I've got magic in my fingertips and my toes. What about you? I love the fact that you always managed to even, like, take over my opening. I Look, I, I could have f- broken into full song, and I didn't. They're probably sick of us singing. We're always singing weird songs. Well, because I was thinking perhaps we should just do one episode where it's a musical. Just like they did on Buffy. Yeah. Remember Buffy the musical episode? No. Buffy the Vampire. Hey, it's a 90s I never thing. watched Buffy. I did later in life. And? Sounds like I'm 80. Uh, it was good. I liked it. Yeah, I liked okay, it. Okay, good. So it's worth going back to? Mm, it doesn't age super well. This is what well. I've been told. Yeah. It's super, super 90s. Right. You know, down to the fashion and the expressions. and. But what about the story itself? Is it a fun, epic story? It modulates. Sometimes it's really great. Sometimes it's really cheesy. I liked some of the more serious episodes. Other mm-hmm. people don't. Eh, whatever. But it is a. It was a cultural phenomenon at the time, right? Yeah. And it was a, a a nice thing to watch instead of Friends. I think Friends was on the same time. For you, it was like if it's not Everybody Loves Raymond, I ain't watching. Oh, God, it. you know me in sitcoms. I just can't do them. I'm just not wired that way. If Coach isn't going to be on TV tonight. I'm heading to the garage. Well, do you know what? Isn't it funny that you should mention Coach? Because Craig T. Nelson figures very prominently in the story I'm telling you tonight. Get out of town! I won't get out of town because I just moved here. So tonight, Dan, let's let's get started. So tonight, Dan... I love love when we have segues like that that happen by accident. It happened by accident, Yeah. yeah. I actually happened by accident. My mom got drunk and my dad was amorous. And it was a sailor's bar. Here I am. Okay, Dan. Tonight, my podcast is a love letter to oh, you, Dan. To, no, not oh, to okay. you. Okay, go, go on. <laughs> my podcast tonight is a love letter uh, to one of my favorite movies of all time. Okay. And because I am a certain age, I'm almost 60, this movie was so important when it landed when I was a kid. And I remember seeing it. I remember the buzz that surrounded it. I just, it was almost as big a deal as Jaws or Close Encounters. Really? And yeah, and this movie is Poltergeist. And Poltergeist is still, I think, one of my favorite horror movies of of all time because to me, it is perfection in that it manages to convey all of this horror and makes you feel, it takes you on an incredible ride without really hurting anyone. Mm. There is nobody killed in this movie. There's no blood and guts, really. It is just a really beautiful horror movie. But more importantly, it was the first time that any of us, and all my friends felt the same way at the time, had ever seen supernatural entities portrayed in this way. Interesting. I didn't even know the word poltergeist until the movie Poltergeist came out. Mm -hmm. And we didn't know that manifestations could be maybe not malevolent at times, could be different. I mean, up to that point in time, paranormal phenomena to me were ghosts and and, and violent, weird things, or like the exorcist, demonic entities, right? Are you, are you going to do like a, a quick synopsis of the film? I'll give you a little bit about it, but I don't need to do a synopsis because I'm going to tell you the story that inspired it. Okay. Well, I, I was just going to, where I was going with that is like, I, I, I've seen the movie, but it's been such a long time. And obviously mm-hmm. there's the iconic TV and the doll and the tree. These are the things I'm remembering. I remember it being kind of being scary and, and. It is and scary. Demonic. Is it not? It's not demonic. Not really. No. 
No. But I'm going to, we're going to jump from island to island a little bit like the story that I did about uh, stories of West Texas in that I'm going to be doing a whole bunch of little stories that all have the movie Poltergeist as the... um, Central pillar. Yeah. The shaft. As the nucleus. Okay, so that's what this is going to be like. And like I said, Dan, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. I can remember so vividly seeing it in the theater. I saw it like four times that summer. Wow. Well, it was a big deal. Can I just tell you really quickly two movies that I saw multiple times in the theater and I don't understand why? Go ahead. What? Twister. Three Twister's times. Twister's great. Twister's a great movie. Well, but really, why did I have to go see that three times? I think, and I think what I did is I saw it. Uh, on my own, like with some friends. And I think I went with my probably girlfriend. And then I think I took my dad to see it. Mm-hmm. And then Stargate, the original Stargate with Kurt Russell. And James Spader. And James Spader. Five. I thought that story, I loved that idea so hard. I saw that five times in the theater. Twister's a great movie, dude. I Twister is one of my favorite winter afternoon, Sunday afternoon in the winter. I watch it again. It's been such a long time. My favorite part of Twister is when they're in that little town and they're all staying in that hotel yeah. and they go into that garage and there's like a drive-in movie theater and stuff and it all gets just torn apart by the Twister. Man, I love I Yeah, love okay. That. So it's it's held up well then. That's good because I, I thought, well, maybe it would be kind of crappy and ni- very 90s-ish. Helen, I had such a huge crush on Helen. And Hunt poor as well. Bill Paxton, who's yeah. now deceased. Yeah. I love Bill actor. Paxton, mm-hmm. and he had a slight stoner voice, which I really liked. <laughs> he always sounded like he was just just had maybe had a little toot on the dube before, you know. You just kind of mm-hmm. like that, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so we're going to talk about all things Poltergeist tonight because it is such an important film. You know, it's really interesting. Poltergeist and ET were out at the same time. Yes. This is 1983 or 84? 82. And it's the 82. year, it's, okay. it's the era of Spielberg. It really is. And he mm-hmm. really, he, there's so many milestones in his early filmmaking. Like that man really was a force to be reckoned with. Yep. Okay. Uh, we could talk about this all night. It's as we've said many times, we need to do a movie. Episode. I think we do. We do. Okay. Dan, these are all things poltergeist. So let's begin by going back to 1958. And there's a man named James Herman, and he lives in Seaford, Long Island. He's at work, and he receives a call from his wife. His wife and the children, their children, Jimmy and Lucy, have been hearing popping sounds coming randomly from all over the house. And when they explore to try to find the source of these sounds, they discover bottles, jars, and lids have been mysteriously opened. And they're just lying there with their contents spilled out. One of those jars actually contained holy water, and that substance has been spilled on the bedroom dresser. Herman rushes home, he sees this for himself, and he disqualifies the whole event and says, oh, it's just teenage pranksters, it's just our kids. Well, five days later, they're just about to have a beautiful 1950s dinner, so it's pot roast and fingerling potatoes. Love it. And canned beans. Love it. They're just about to eat, and it all starts happening again. And this time they actually see bottles moving across surfaces of their own accord. So they're sliding down tables, sliding in cupboards, sliding in the medicine cabinet. So being a sensible, practical, pragmatic man, he immediately calls the police. Officers are dispatched. Interesting. Yeah, they come and arrive at the home and they confirm that the bottles are indeed moving and opening themselves. So they see it. 
They see it. The police it. see it. They see it. Wow. I know a little bit. I, I'll admit, I do know a little bit about this story. I didn't realize that. I know the the very broad strokes of this story. I didn't realize like the, the police even were able to witness it. Yeah. Wow. And the police are also sensible people. So they're convinced that something's wrong. Right. Okay. With the house. Okay, great. Yes. Okay. So they're like, oh no, we got to figure this out. So immediately they get in touch with different um, departments at the, in this community in Long Island that they live at. They come and do a bunch of tests. And they do tests on the structure. They do seismic tests. They do electricity tests. They try to pinpoint why these strange occurrences are happening. No matter what they do, they get nothing. Everything is within normal parameters. How am I not supposed to laugh at you wrapping yourself up in that quilt just now? I'm cold. It just looked funny. Go ahead. It's fine. More incidents at the house began to occur. One night, a heavy bookshelf suddenly falls over. And on another occasion, a statue of the Virgin Mary suddenly flies through the air and smashes against a mirror located 12 feet away. That's common. Everyone has that happen in their home. But it's a good one. That's why they need those hooks, those those damn brackets that you get when you buy a bookcase that drills into the wall, the L-shaped bracket. Has anyone ever used those? No. <laughs> That's what I never, never have. Partly because I'm like, how the fuck is this thing going to fall? Like, well, I know. And really, yeah. yeah. I've got one of those, those huge, you know, they're, they're from Ikea and they look like a bunch of boxes and it's huge. Like it's, it's, yeah, I know it's what that like is. seven yeah, everybody feet high. And yeah, I, uh, I'm not like that. You would have to really try to work at making that thing tip. I, and you just throw those away, those brackets. I just throw them away. Yeah. Well, maybe that also explains why people put the Virgin Mary in a bathtub on their lawn. So if she flies away. <laughs> That's right. If she flies away, she's going to go out into the yard and, you know, the dog will chase her. Yeah. And no one gets hurt. I think it's beautiful every spring when you see the migration of uh, the Mary statues returning back north and resting <laughs> from Mexico. And, and, and yeah, they spend all their time, the winter in Mexico and they come back and they find a nice bathtub on someone's lawn or, or a fountain and, uh, and they, they, they nest for the, the summer there. I think that's and beautiful. There they go. I once uh, lived w- w- when, uh, when I first moved to Canada uh, in a community where there was a Portuguese family and they had the bathtub Virgin Yeah, we Mary. have one in our neighborhood too. Well, the Virgin Mary though was changed seasonally and I didn't know this, that they would oh. change her for different, like she was dressed differently or she'd have, in this one she had flowers and that, and the, the, this statue she had the sacred heart. So she- Like a f- smart business suit. Yeah, Maybe she was like Barbie. She had her, her looks. A jean, a jean jacket and jeans. I'd love to see the Virgin Mary in jeans. Yeah, me too. She should modernize herself. She's probably a sensible shopper too. She'd go to Old Navy when they have their sale. Mm-hmm. Talbots. These were $12. I call that a miracle. Uh, okay. <laughs> love it. So back to the story. On February 17th, 1958, of course, a priest came to bless the house. Because if science can't fix it, Jesus can. So news of the mysterious goings well, I would on. Be, I actually would be contacting the church if that's happening. I'm I would too, just, just in case. Yeah. So news of what had been happening at the Herman House had spread and eventually it found its way into the pages of Life Magazine. Oh, yes. We've talked about Life Magazine. Well, which was a major publication back in the day, right? It was beautiful. I loved it. I love the black and white covers with the, the Life logo in bright red. It was very well done. It, it, its demise was recent, 
right? Like in the last 15, 20 years, maybe? I think so, yeah. yeah. It's very famous for its photography. Yes. So people were suggesting that the house was haunted by a ghost. But the house was brand new. Right. And it had been purchased by the Hermans in 1953. No one had ever lived there before. It was just land. This was the suburbs. So the suburbs had been create, had been built on what was before agricultural property. So what's the ghost of, right? There's no, nothing there for it to have been right. a ghost, to, to be the source of a ghost or a haunting. One photographer who had been dispatched by the British press, and he had been sent to take specific photographs of the house, he was invited inside and he actually saw his flashbulbs rise up off the table and then drop abruptly. Harmless stuff, though, really. I mean, they weren't broken. That would freak me out, but at least yeah. it's not malevolent. Right. So enter Dr. J.B. Ryan of Duke University's Parapsychology Laboratory. I love the Duke University, which is a, 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 a top tier institution, had a, a parapsychology laboratory. Duke, Duke is ca a Catholic institution too, I believe, right? I have no idea. So they would be more open perhaps to that type of thing. Or would they? I don't know. Don't the Catholics sort of denounce shit like that? Ghosty stuff? No, they, they believe in the spiritual. I mean, they do exorcisms, right? They're the, the authority. Well, they believe in demons. They believe in demons and, and exorcisms and all that. So I don't know. I, I believe Duke is a Catholic. I, I, I'm not, I think it's lay, and, but maybe it wasn't always this way, but I believe it's lay professors and stuff like that. But I believe Duke University has a Catholic leaning. There's a university okay. in, here in Canada that does it too. Okay. Okay. I don't care. So <laughs> Dr. Ryan believed that the whole event might be the result of a poltergeist, mm -hmm. given that the Herman children were both teenagers. Mm. And as we know, there is a strong correlation between poltergeist activity and adolescence. They believe it has something to do with the hormones. Because well, God knows that's all adolescence too? is about. Yes, girls primarily, but boys as well. And Well, right, with the, the exorcism of Roland Doe, boy. Yeah. Uh, what are the age of these kids? Young teenagers? Early teenagers. Early yeah. teenagers, yeah. Early teenagers, yeah. So he, Dr. Ryan assembled a team and went to the house to investigate. This is mirrors exactly what happens in Poltergeist. But shortly after the team arrived and set up all their equipment to monitor the house, the events abruptly stopped. And that was that. So between February the 3rd and March the 10th, 1958, almost 70 events had been observed by the Hermans and other witnesses. Wow, wow. 70 events. The family eventually moved away from the home. And they later stated in interviews that they believed the events that had occurred in their home were connected to an ancient First Nations burial site that was located near the site where, near the community where the home had been And what led them to think that that was what it was? They found out from local Indigenous peoples that this yes. was... Yes. They had found out that there had been an Indian burial site. Now, whether or not it was rumor, there is no way to verify that. Mm -hmm. I should note, however, there have been no further events recorded at that location. And an interesting fact is, and this is kind of cool, the Herman House is about seven miles away from the Amityville House. Oh. That close. Oh, yeah. wow. I know, cool, eh? Long Island spooky. There's some spooky shit in Long Island. It's yeah, spooky. Yeah. Roanoke and, or not Roanoke, sorry. Um, that place with the, the turning radar was there. Montauk, Montauk yes. which is on the tip of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And you know, that's still one of my favorite episodes you did because you did, the delivery was so good. You were like, and then that night it moved again. It's the way you did that. The perfect pause. Then that night it moved again. Uh, and with that story, I think the only really creepy, like, Oh, like everything else has a pot, like the time warp thing. And the, the animal that washed up on shore, it's that damn radar moving. That is just weird. It is. It's weird. And so many people saw it happen. So it's not like it was like a one person's account. It was like the police force was there watching. People it. who are joining us for the first time or have only listened to a couple of episodes, it's in our back catalog. You'll find it. Yeah. So we shouldn't reference it too much because people are going to throw their phones at the wall in disgust. Okay. So Spielberg obviously loosely based the script for Poltergeist around the events at the Herman house. Okay. Everything I've just told you is obvious. And it was a little haunting. It was a little one. It was so small because really all that would happen was objects would move and lids would come off jars. I mean, it was just a very tiny contained haunting, very specific. What ended it? Why did it abruptly stop? Just stop. The moment the team showed up from Duke University, it stopped. And that was that. Really, eh? Really. All right, Dan. So- I'm going to leave the Herman house now. We're going to leave it behind. All right. I'm going to talk to you now about the creation of the script for Poltergeist, because I think it's an interesting story. And there's probably going to be a lot of details in what I'm about to say in my narrative that people aren't aware of. So the scripts for both Poltergeist and E.T. the Extraterrestrial mm -hmm. began as a single concept called Night Skies. Really? Yes. And Night Skies was going to be the sequel to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And he had already made a deal that it was going to be produced by Columbia Pictures. Okay. So Steven Spielberg had come up with a concept involving a farm family that was terrorized by a group of evil aliens, where the aliens in the first installment of Close Encounters had been harmless. They just wanted to communicate with us. In the sequel, these were going to be evil, mean aliens that were actually up to no good. Like E.T.? It's a matter of opinion. I hated that movie. All right. What? John Sayles. Well, for, you did for real? I really did. I was too old. Oh, okay, I was like okay, 23 true. or something. Right? Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. old and cynical. And it's very much a family movie. John Sayles, famous John Sayles, was actually contracted to write the first script. However, after reviewing the proposal, Columbia passed on the project. So Columbia, who had originally said, yeah, we'll do this, said, no, we're not going to do it. So Spielberg walked it across the lot to MGM. Mm. And he made a deal with MGM stating that he would produce the, sh the movie and find someone else to direct it. Now, he couldn't direct it. And I didn't know this. I always thought he just wanted Toby Hooper to direct it. But no, he couldn't direct it because he was currently working on E.T. And one of the terms oh. of the contract he had with Universal was that he would not direct another film until E.T. had wrapped. Oh, so he couldn't do it. So he approached Toby Hooper. And at that time, Toby Hooper's basically resume consisted of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, interesting. That's what he was mostly known for in the horror realm. I mean, that was what put him on the map. So Hooper read the script and said he really didn't like the alien component. He thought it made it too complicated. And he said to Spielberg that he would prefer to do a straight on ghost story. After considering his comments, Spielberg agreed. So Spielberg said, I will take the aliens out of the script and it will simply be a story about malevolent ghosts. Now, according to Hooper, Toby Hooper, he pitched the idea to Spielberg 
And if you look back at the lore of the film, there was so much shit surrounding the script. There was so much shit. Some people say he ripped off an episode of The Twilight Zone. Others say Toby Hooper came up with the idea. Others say Spielberg came up with the idea. There's some writer who wrote a, a pulp novel who said he came up with the idea. Oh, of course. It's yeah. just one of those movies that there's just so much to wade through. This podcast isn't about the making of Poltergeist, so I'm no. not going to get into it. According to Hooper, he said it was a concept that he had been developing with Universal Pictures for years. And Hooper claims, now this is kind of believable. He said that he had found a book about poltergeists in the desk of Robert Weiss. Robert Weiss, famous director, directed The Sound of Music. Yeah. Robert Weiss had also directed a movie, very famous movie called The Haunting. Okay. Right? And The Haunting had been, was redone back in the 90s. Yeah. And it was absolutely atrocious. But The Haunting, again, is a, a seminal horror movie. People refer to it all the time. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, Robert Rice would have a book on poltergeists, right? So after reading the book, which he borrowed, Hooper thought that it would be an awesome concept around which to build a film. And Hooper states that he originally worked with William Friedkin, who was oh. the director of The Exorcist yeah. on the project. And they had actually worked with Universal and had agreed that they were going to use the now infamous surround sound technology to create the audio effects for the movie. Dolby? And Cause Dolby's surround sound, right? You know, well, you yeah, know. Dolby, Dolby first started out, there was a noise limiting technology. Oh, interesting. that's what Dolby really originally was. Anyway. And Hooper says that he eventually got in contact with Spielberg and pitched the project. Okay. And the two corresponded over uh, the movie while Spielberg was filming Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right. This we know. So whoever created it, whatever, we do know that they wrote back and forth while Spielberg was filming Raiders. During the writing process, a lot of ideas were brought to the table that didn't make it into the film. Some of these were that the, um, the neighbors of the uh, suburban couple who were haunted. In the original um, rendering of the script, the neighbors turn against the family. Oh, interesting. Because there's so much going on. Um, in the first version of the script, the family was four kids instead of three and in the first uh, version of the script, this is important, the bodies underneath the house, which is an important component of the movie, you find it out later, mm -hmm. uh, were white settlers that had been killed by First Nations in the 1800s. So that also had been changed because I don't know if you remember or not, but in Poltergeist, it had just been built on a graveyard. Yeah, that's what I remember. Oh, sorry, in the movie, it's an everyday, it's not an indigenous graveyard? No. No, it's just a graveyard. Oh, I thought I had it in my head that it was okay. Okay. Yeah, no, they built a they build up this community and it's they move the gravestones but not the graves. Ooh. And that happens, eh, by the way. Like that that is a real thing. Can you imagine? Ugh. Okay. The original script for Poltergeist didn't include some of its most famous moments, which is the clown doll, that horrible clown doll sitting in the rocking chair, the haunted tree, which grabs the sun. Yeah. And the wonderful shot of the toys floating around Carol Ann's bedroom. When they open the door and it's just a whole twister, because you already mentioned twister, a twister of toys and records and stuff floating in the air. And also Carol Ann's closet actually turning into a giant evil gateway to the other side. Mm -hmm. That was not in the original script. This is my favorite little anecdote. And this is the one I didn't know. Spielberg had actually approached Stephen King to write the script. Oh, interesting. I know. I love this. However, uh, King's publisher asked way too much money for it and a deal couldn't be reached. So Spielberg was like, there's no way we're paying this amount of money for a script. This is not going to happen. 
So two guys were brought on board, Michael Grace and Mark Victor, and they were brought, they were asked to write the screenplay, which they did. They handed it in and Spielberg hated it. Mm. He said it was super violent and, and in their version, Carol Ann died. And he said he wanted this to be kind of a family friendly film. So he did not want Carol Ann to die. So with the help of producers, Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall, and these are the people that produced everything Spielberg basically ever did in his Kathleen heyday. Kennedy goes back that far? Yeah. I thought she was young. No. Oh. And so Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall, they moved into Spielberg's house and helped him rewrite the screenplay. Isn't that something? So they had basically an intensive workshop to redo the script. And Toby Hooper himself would drop into Spielberg's house from time to time and just, you know, offer his two cents. Like Frank Marshall's a legend and everyone knows Frank Marshall. And I think, uh, you know, people know who Kathleen Kennedy, but I don't think she gets enough credit for the well, impact that she's had on cinema. Yeah. I mean, they, they did tons of stuff. Yeah. So the script was finally finished on February the 9th, 1981. And it the name was changed from Dark Skies to, it was now a screenplay called... Poltergeist. Okay. And this is my favorite part. The film started shooting, principal shooting, three months later. Wow. Which never happens. So there you go. Three months later, boom, they're on set. Poltergeist was ultimately directed by Toby Hooper. And notable members of the cast were Craig T. Nelson, who you mentioned earlier, of coach fame. Uh, Joe Beth Williams, who was at that time a rising star. Heather O'Rourke. Dominique Dunn. And, of course, the unforgettable Zelda Rubinstein, who played the role of Tangina. Now, Spielberg had originally pegged Drew Barrymore for the role of Heather Ann. Of Heather Ann. What am I saying? But she was busy. Of Carol Ann, not Heather Ann. I know someone named Heather Ann. Actually, I'm not going to tell you who, why he cast uh, Heather O'Rourke, but I will tell you later. But it's a very good story. I just want to do stuff in sequence. Okay. We'll put a pin in it. Yeah, let's put a pin in it. Zelda Rubinstein, who was the medium, was a real medium. Really? Yeah, she wasn't an actress. She would dabble in acting, but she was a medium. That was her main gig. So I love that. That she is so unforgettable. Yeah, she really is. Yeah. In her giant aviator glasses. So the story, Dan. You asked me what story. I'll just basically say it follows the supernatural events that plague a California family who move into a new home in a development called Cuesta Verde. And they find out later that the home was actually buried on a graveyard. And the developer said they moved the graveyard, but they didn't. They only moved the headstones. Now, the setting of Cuesta Verde was based on the neighborhood where Spielberg himself had actually grown up in Scottsdale, Arizona. So he created the neighborhood to sort of reflect that. The movie was released on June the 4th, 1982. So one of the interesting facts about it is that uh, Spielberg had to fight the motion picture Association of America to get the rating down to PG. He really wanted this to be the kind of movie that a family could go see, not a family, obviously, with little Disney kids, but, you know, like 12-year-old kid could handle it. So they did eventually drop it from rated R to rated PG. This, in part, contributed to the film's success. It became a family phenomenon. Poltergeist was the most successful horror film of 1982 and the eighth most profitable film of that year. Wow, I didn't know that. It had been nominated for three Academy Awards for sound, for original score, and for special effects. Uh The special effects had been provided by George Lucas's Industrial Light and Magic, which was responsible for every great effects movie back in the day. 
Interesting lore surrounding the movie, many, many say, and I believe it, that Spielberg was much more involved in directing the film than you might think. Hmm. Toby Hooper, I think, was there, but I think Spielberg was constantly over his shoulder. Many of the members of the crew that worked on the film have stated, like without any you know, prompting, that Spielberg was indeed the de facto director of the film. Interesting. Because remember, he contractually could not interfere in the film. And Zelda Rubenstein herself in interviews later said that um, she had done her role. She was on set for six days. That's when they filmed all of the Tangina moments. That's the character she played was named Tangina. She said that Spielberg was there the whole time. Really? Working with her. In disguise? No, just there. It's just that he couldn't couldn't direct in an official capacity because he had a restrictive contract with another company. I, I like the idea of him arriving in a different disguise every day. I think he'd be pretty easy to spot. Hot dog, a giant walking hot dog. All right. So people say that Poltergeist is a cursed film. I've heard this, yes. Or cursed, if you want to be pretentious. A lot of people (laughs) associated with the film have died, and a lot of weird stuff has happened as a result of the film. I'm going to talk about some of that shit now. Okay. Okay, first off, let's talk about Heather O'Rourke. Heather O'Rourke played Carol Ann, and she's probably the most memorable character in the film because she's on the poster. She has that famous line, they're back or they're here. She says them twice. Mm -hmm. So she was eating lunch with her mother at a restaurant when Steven Spielberg happened to walk by. And he was struck by how angelic she looked because she had beautiful silken blonde hair beautiful blue eyes. She was a gorgeous child. And he went over, introduced himself and asked her to test for a project he was working on. The next day after that test, he cast her in Poltergeist. Before that, he was pretty sure that he was going to use Drew Barrymore and she had already been told that she was going to do it. So like I said, she's known for that iconic line, they're here. Mm -hmm. Interesting fact, she was six years old when Poltergeist was filmed. She was six. She went through a lot. Yeah. That's a pretty interesting film to do when you're six years old. Everyone who worked with her said she was an absolute joy to work with. What she looked like, her outward appearance is exactly what she was like as a human being. She was gentle and sweet and kind. In 1986, she reprised the role of Carol Ann in the movie Poltergeist 2, which is not a bad movie at all. One year later, in 1987, she began to feel unwell. And her doctors believe that she had contracted Jardia from well water. I've had Jardia. It's awful. You just, you just poop and feel unwell. Mm-hmm. However, her symptoms persisted. And it was then that she was misdiagnosed with Crohn's disease. Oh. So they claimed she had Crohn's disease and started to treat her for that. Okay. Yeah, which I have. I have which Crohn's have. disease, yes. And so that's what they thought which she had. I was also misdiagnosed uh, with diverticulitis and was being treated for that, which sent me into, like it made my condition so much worse. Oh my God. And and could have, well, I don't know if I could have, well, I guess I, if, I had hit, it, if it had continued, uh, I could have died too. Because it's, these, you don't, these things are serious. I had a friend who had, um, wasn't using the bathroom. And he went to the emergency ward and the emergency ward was busy as it always is, mm-hmm. you know, 12 hour wait. And um, he didn't want to wait that long because he was in just a lot of discomfort. But the nurse said, it just sounds like you probably are constipated, take a laxative, which he did. And his intestines ended up rupturing and he <gasps> had, um, uh, what is it called? Um, 
para- anyway, his the stomach cavity was flooded with toxins. Yeah. Parito- peritonitis. That's what it is. And as a result of the laxative, he had peritonitis and almost died. He yeah. actually did die on the operating table, but they revived Well, him. this is the thing. What people don't realize about Crohn's or colitis is that if it's left alone uh, with not being treated, you end up going into, you can go into septic shock because that matter that is supposed to be kept in the intestines leaks into the rest of your body. And that's, that's what happens. So they thought she had Crohn's and they started to treat her with it. So she began to work on Poltergeist 3 which is one of the worst sequels ever made. It's awful. It takes place in a high rise. Everything about that film is wrong. It's just, ugh. So once that particular film wrapped, she went on a dream vacation that she had always wanted to take to Disney World in Florida. The following year, she was ill again. And this time the diagnosis was that she just had the flu. She couldn't swallow. Her fingers and toes were turning blue and she had difficulty breathing. The next day she collapsed and suffered a heart attack. Oh my God. And she's what, like 10? She's 12. 12. Uh, Yeah. And they called an an ambulance. Obviously she was rushed to the hospital. And the next day she died during surgery to repair a bowel obstruction that they discovered had been caused by a birth defect. And had this been identified, it could have been easily repaired. So the cause of her death was septic shock. Her body basically poisoned and killed her. Wow. And a number of gastrointestinal, Oh, this is hard to say. A number of gastroenterologists examined the case and said that her death was very unusual. And she should have exhibited a lot of digestive difficulties throughout her life due to the birth defect. But maybe she just didn't say anything. Or maybe this particular, in this particular case, they just didn't manifest. So she died at a horrendously young age. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, so that is the story of Heather O'Rourke. Now let's tell the story of Dominique Dunn. Dominique Dunn was the daughter of the famous writer-director Dominic Dunn. There's a, you can watch a, there's a Netflix documentary about uh, it. No, I, you're not going to tell me what to watch. Well, then don't watch it. Okay, Remain stupid. Fine, I won't watch it. Maybe I will watch it now. Her older brother was also an actor, and the family was kind of what you would consider Hollywood royalty. You know, it's like the Fonda's. Those kind of the Douglases, they're just, you know, father to son or daughter. The Savages. Like Fred Savage. And his brothers, Lionel, Gary, Cedric. You know what's really funny? When you see Fred Savage now, I just can't see the kid in him anymore. No, he he aged. Oddly. It's like Haley Joel Osment. Yeah. Haley Joel Osment aged into someone who looks like they never leave their mother's basement. (laughs) Poor guy. Like the Papa John's delivery guy knows them by name. Isn't he acting again? I think he is. I don't know in what though. So we have Dominique Dunn. Uh, She'd been working in film and television before getting cast in Poltergeist. And some of her credits include, and these are all famous shows. That's why I mentioned them. Chips. Everybody knows Chips. Hill Street Blues. Everybody knows that because it was the first gritty crime drama. Lou Grant, which I'm a huge fan of. Fame. And St. Elsewhere. But her breakthrough role was definitely playing Carol Ann's older sister, Dana, in Poltergeist. At that time, she had been dating a very well-known chef in the uh, L.A. area named John Thomas Sweeney. And Sweeney had been horrendous as a boyfriend. He was emotionally and physically abusive. And in 1982, the year that Poltergeist came out, she broke up with him. She's like, I've had enough. And she stated to friends and family that she was relieved that he was finally out of her life because he was also very clingy. 
because that always seems to go hand in hand with abuse, being very possessive and awful. Yeah. <sighs> On the night of October the 30th, 1982, Sweeney showed up at her house and he was distraught. She was actually in the middle of rehearsing a scene with another actor named David Packer for a, an upcoming project. A vicious argument ensued between her and Sweeney, Sweeney insisting that Dominique take him back. He wanted them to, to just be boyfriend and girlfriend again. She adamantly refused. Sweeney then became enraged, grabbed her by the throat, and squeezed until she fell unconscious. When the police arrived, Sweeney looked like he was in a state of shock and said, the first thing he said to them was, I've killed my girlfriend. Yeah. Dominique was rushed to the hospital where she was stabilized and she remained in a coma for five days. But on November the 4th, 1982, her heart stopped beating. She was 22 years old. Mm. Now, a lot of people believe that the Dunn family had opted to pull the plug, that there was no hope for her that she was brain dead. This is the part that really has nothing to do with the story in terms of its relationship to Poltergeist, but I've got to share this with you. He served three years and seven <gasps> months for involuntary manslaughter. How is that involuntary? Right? During the trial, it was actually revealed that he tried to strangle her on two previous occasions. And there were witnesses to back this up. I thought I'd throw this in because it's interesting and it's good for context. This is an excerpt from a letter that Dominic had written to Sweeney. And this letter was read aloud at the trial. Why must you know the name of every person I come into contact with? You go crazy over my rehearsals. You insist on going to work with me when I have told you it makes me nervous. Your paranoia is overboard. You do not love me. You are obsessed with me. The person you think you love is not me at all. It is someone you have made up in your head. I'm the person who makes you angry, who you fight with sometimes. I think we only fight when images of me fade away and you are faced with the real me. That's why arguments erupt out of nowhere. The whole thing has made me realize how scared I am of you and I don't mean just physically. I'm afraid of the next time you're going to have another mood swing. When we are good, we are great, but when we are bad, we are horrendous. The bad outweighs the good. So right there, you can see the what whole thing. What was the judge's justification for an involuntary manslaughter? Meaning you had no, you wasn't, you didn't mean at all for this to happen, but well, he was, someone. he was obviously by reason of insanity, right? I mean, that was obviously the plea. Okay. So maybe they made some kind of deal. I don't know, but. What a sack of crap. And if you hear her father, Dominic Dunn, talk about it, he still is just, it's just ruined him. I think you and I are both pretty much on the same page. I'm not all, uh, I'm not a uh, pro lock them up, throw the key away. I believe people can be reformed. And I believe that the penal system exists in many, you know, countries around the world. It doesn't actually serve a real purpose other than to just punish people. And I get too, that a lot of people who commit crimes are sometimes, sometimes mentally ill and that can contribute to it. And that should be treated in a different way. Uh, and perhaps he was. So who knows? I say, I call him a piece of crap and maybe he really was a mentally ill person who needed help. And it's unfortunate what happened, but I don't know. That just seems, I find sometimes, and I'm not trying to, to get on the bandwagon uh, with this, but it often is the case with, 
with women when it comes to being murdered by loved ones. Absolutely. And you know what? When I read this, I bet I said to myself, this would not have been the outcome in this day and age. No, probably not. He would not have served so little time. Anyway, uh, let's move on to another death. That's a happy one. Jeez, Louise. I know. And it's, I, I didn't want this episode to sound like a true crime podcast. Let's move on to Julian Beck. Julian Beck played the Reverend Kane in Poltergeist 2. It's one of my favorite portrayals ever. I've talked about him before. Yeah. Because of Carol Ann, Carol Ann. Oh, little girl, Carol Ann. It's just the most unsettling thing. Here's the background of Julian Beck. He is so fucking fascinating. He was primarily a stage actor, a painter, and a poet. And he was founder of a theater company in New York called The Living Theater. And he worked with that company until his oh. death. They had been inspired by the work of Antonin Artaud. And you don't have to know who that... Yeah, I know what you're talking about. So theater of, let's call it dark theater, the theater of oppression. The, it's, it's theater that deals with very dark subjects. Mm -hmm. And it's supposed to be very upsetting. It's not Annie. <laughs> right. It's the opposite. Yeah. He was an outsider. He operated by his own rules. He had a really fun rap sheet where a lot of it included indecent exposure and intoxication and doing weird hippie shit. He had only appeared in a few films because, like I said, he was mostly known for stage. And these included The Cotton Club and the notorious film Nine and a Half Weeks with Mickey oh. Rourke. Uh, his only uh, TV appearance ever in the history of his career was his as a character called J.J. Johnson in Miami Vice. Oh, neat. <laughs> I know. I love that it's just that one show. Director Brian Gibson thought that he would be perfect for the Poltergeist sequel. How Gibson knew of his work, I don't know. But his haggard appearance and his distinctive raspy voice made him perfect for that particular portrayal. When he first arrived on the set of Poltergeist 2, Heather O'Rourke, who by that time I guess was about eight years old, was terrified and began to cry. He just was so off-putting. Now, here's an interesting fact. During the shooting of Poltergeist 2, Beck was in fact suffering from stomach cancer, stage four, mm. throughout the filming. He was dying. He was in intense pain, but was determined to see the project through to completion. On September the 14th, 1985, he died at the age of only 60. And Poltergeist wasn't out then. It would not be released for another eight months. And in fact, a lot of his dialogue had to be dubbed by another actor during post-production because he was already deceased. Ah. So that is the story of him. And he is, Beck, Julian Beck is fascinating. I mean, you just read about him and it's just like, it's just weird, fun, hippie stuff. Yeah. And he's a true artist in every, you know, sense of the word. He just marches to his own rhythm and he's fascinating. And he was married to the same woman his whole life and... Yeah, and, and, well, the, and you can, if you go back and look at Poltergeist 2, you can see the pain in his face. You can see that there's more behind the, the character of Reverend Kane than just a really good actor. There's other elements at play, and that's obviously a, a disease that's ravaging his body. Mm. Okay, let's go on to Will Sampson, another actor from Poltergeist 2. Will Sampson was a member of the Cree tribe, and he's known for his portrayal uh, best known to moviegoers for his portrayal of Indian in One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And that's a non-speaking role. He got that part by sitting next to Michael Douglas on an aircraft, on a flight. Douglas, I didn't know this, was co-producer of... I didn't know that either. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And he thought that Samson would be perfect for that role because Samson was six foot seven. He's a giant guy, right? And so they thought, just, this guy's perfect. And so he 
he said, would you like to do this? And he said, yes. Did you know that I played Randall P. McMurphy in a university production of, of uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Was it fun? I loved it. It's one of my favorite things I probably have ever done. It's a good script. Beautiful script. And it was such an honor to be able to play that part. But then the other actors that were in it, some of whom you know, uh, were phenomenal. And the the, um, uh, the it was a French actor playing that part of Chief, and he was huge. So it was perfect. Following Cuckoo's Nest, he had also appeared in a movie called The White Buffalo and a famous B-horror movie called Orca. Orca was a movie that was... It was very obviously following in the in the shadow of Jaws, right? But it was about this this, this killer whale that had a chip on its shoulder. Anyway, and uh, the other the other one was Flipper Flips. I've never seen a Flipper movie, and you think I would have? I'm that generation, but yeah. I've never seen. It was a Disney staple. I don't really give a shit about dolphins. Like I what love them, the? but I don't I don't care about dolphin movies. Okay, in Poltergeist, <laughs> you said that with. <laughs> I I don't really either, but you you said it with such disdain. My, there, like, there, there was, was a, a lot whole of, swath them. of people who love dolphin movies. <laughs> movies. I'm going against everyone else. I hate dolphin movies. I don't care if everyone loves them. Everyone's talking about dolphin movies. I'm out. I did like Free Willy. I hated Free Willy. It was cute. I went to Free Willy at the drive-in theater with a girl that I really liked. And during the movie, did you Free Willy? No, no. Yeah, I had a, I had a pretty big crush on this girl and uh, so she loved it and it was interesting she's gone on to become a successful marine biologist and oh. i think free willie actually inspired that and oh, can okay. i here, here's a quick aside can i tell you too that with this girl so i i liked this girl from about grade seven through this high was school. serious this was a deep crush to the point where we became we were like best friends and I still, to this day, remember she had was over at my house one day and said, and this is probably like we're in grade nine, maybe. And she said to me, isn't it great that we're platonic friends? Oh. Okay. And in my head, I'm like, well, that's that. Right. Oh. I really liked her. So we hung out. Like I loved being around her. And I found out years later that uh, like in my early twenties and she was with her now husband that she she brought up that moment like well how she basically admitted that she had had a huge crush on me and she brings up that day about this the, the I remember asking you saying the platonic thing and and you just went along with it and I thought okay well that's it she was hoping that I would say well oh. no I, and I was like why how would I know that oh the games people play just just say it anyway I everything worked out for the best but it was a funny funny free willy story for you. Yeah, I found out somebody I had a huge crush on uh, when I was in my 20s had a huge crush on me, and that's unfortunate. But things did work out for the best. Okay, uh, we were talking about Will Sampson. Is Elon Musk? I'd marry Elon Musk. Well, who wouldn't? And I'd divorce him five five minutes later, and, and I'd, I'd laugh all the way to the bank. Mm -hmm. Anyway, okay, so Will Sampson. And he, like I said, he was huge, six foot seven. Mm -hmm. Now, Sampson suffered from a condition called scleroderma. And scleroderma affects the heart, lungs, and skin. And he had to uh, undergo a heart and lung transplant for this condition because otherwise he was going to die. And he knew going into it that the operation had a very small survival rate. So he went through with it and he knew that he was probably going to die. And he did. Uh, I think he lasted six weeks or something. He went home, but it, uh, it eventually claimed his life. Legend states that during the filming of Poltergeist 2, there was so much weird shit going on on the set 
And the crew were so unsettled that he actually performed a traditional First Nations purification ceremony to help to try to cleanse the space. Wow. So the crew left the set unlocked and he went back that night and did this ceremony. No one saw him do it, but legend states that this actually happened. And Craig T. Nelson, respected actor, later stated, and I quote, I'm convinced that the presence of Will Sampson on the film saved us from tragedy. I believe it cost him dearly in terms of his own personal health to see us all safely through. Wow. So Craig was down with the, down with the, what was going on with the vibe, the spooky times. Huh. Yeah. Anyway, Craig T. Nelson's a really nice guy. apparently Jerry Van Dyke performed a similar uh, ceremony on the set of Coach. He played that stupid guy, right? Yeah. Okay. We're almost there. Lou Perryman who played the role of Craig T. Nelson's friend Steve in the original film, just as a moment in the film. He was well-known, though, to horror fans as the character of LG in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, probably why he got the role. In 2009, Lou Perryman was killed when an axe-wielding ex-convict named Seth Christopher Tatum attacked him at his home in Austin, Texas. Just came into the house to rob him. and 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 axed him to death. And he was in the... Uh, he was in Poltergeist. Yeah. That's weird. That is, I mean, it, none of them on their own are weird. But it's a lot of darkness. Around one production. Okay, I'm not done. Author James Kahn, who had been hired to write a book to accompany the film, and it was his first book, claims that immediately after he typed out the line, lightning ripped open the sky, at that moment, his workplace was struck by lightning, and he felt a sharp pain in his back. The air conditioning unit on his house exploded because of the lightning and all the arcade games that he collected, he was a collector, began to operate themselves. Ding, 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 and all that stuff. So he, to this day, remains convinced that something wanted him to know that it was there and it was watching. Can I just say this? Can I just say this? Yeah. So the listener doesn't know this, but we've experienced two weird things in the recording of this episode, my power just turned off. That's right. Just everything shut off. Luckily, everything, I had my laptop battery kick in and all that, but, and it's back up now, but, and then you in the middle of this, um, in the middle of this recording, you just, yeah, your internet, which is not, again, not, it has happened, but it was two things in the same episode. In one episode. Oh no. And I'm not kidding you. And again, I don't know if you can see this, but my lights keep flickering. Oh no, It's happened Dan. three times while we've been recording. I have a lamp right next to me and it, it keeps flickering. Again, maybe just needs a new bulb. And I'm not making this up. We've never, we do not ever do this in any of our episodes. And you know, I think if you listen enough to us, you know that we're, skept- we're skeptical often. Yeah, we remain to be convinced. And yeah. I still do with this. I'm not saying that this is a spirit watching, but it is a bit weird that we're talking about this. It is a bit this. weird. Yeah. Yeah, because that's a lot of bad things to go wrong in one episode. Uh, Joe Beth Williams, she played the mother in the film. She did a great job. She claimed that Mm -hmm. Steven Spielberg insisted that real skeletons be used during the filming of Poltergeist. By the way, that's not unusual. I did some research. They used to use real bodies and skeletons all the time because it was just way cheaper. What? Yeah, look it up. It's super cheap. Yeah. Cheap to get a human skeleton? And a body. Like a corpse. Yeah, they've used corpses in films. I didn't know this. Like what? I don't know, but I'm not going to quote any. Just look it up yourself. But anyway, they claim that skeletons were used during the film because they looked so real. And people donate their bodies and stuff. And I, I don't film? know. film? 
Is that a box you can check off? I don't know how this all works, but there you have it. Wow. And then a lot of people say that this is why um, the film was cursed, because the dead were upset that their bodies are being used in, in this way. Yes. Another spooky story. During the filming of Poltergeist 3, that wretched, wretched movie in the high rise, with fucking Tom Skerritt, who has had so many good movies and so many misses in his life. Yeah. He's just one of those actors, right? He's like, who's that guy from 300 that I always laugh about? Uh, Gerard Jared Butler. Butler. Gerard Butler. God, that man. He can act. I want to hang out at his house and read the scripts that he's reading. Go, no, Gerard. No, don't do this yeah, script. because he's good. Like, he I, is good. Yeah. He just picks some shitty, shitty, shitty movies. Okay. During the filming of Poltergeist 3, Zelda Rubenstein received a call. And it was from the hospital saying that her mother had just died. Mm. All of the footage shot that day was unusable because there was a white light that covered Zelda's face at the specific moment that her mother had died. They actually found out that the moment her mother died, there was a white light on oh, Rubenstein's cool. face for, for about a minute. Wow. And that particular shot couldn't be used, so they had to reshoot. I think that's beautiful, though. I love that stuff. I, I, I like that idea, too. Her mother was just touching her and saying, bye-bye. Yeah. One final piece of trivia, Dan. The roar of the beast. I don't know if you actually remember during the movie, but Zelda Rubenstein says it. It is this the is beast. Three? No, first movie. It is the beast. And at the very end of the movie, you see the beast come out of the closet. It's a big demon. I don't remember thing. that. Anyway, it's there. The roar of the beast is actually the roar of the MGM lion put through various processors. Oh, neat. Yeah. So they used the sound of one of the movie's most famous um, and iconic animals. And that is an actual lion roaring, right? The yeah, MGM so a lion. real lion's yeah. roar. So that was the, the roar of the beast in Poltergeist is the MGM lion put through a bunch of reverbs and things. Neat. So that, Dan, is the story of Poltergeist, the cursed movie. Well, uh, yeah. So put all of that together. What a strange thing. And I do wonder then if the skeletons and if there's bodies that were yeah, used right? in it. Super fun. Super yeah. fun story. I didn't know any of the lore. I didn't know Stephen King had been approached. I didn't know about that it was the original script was a sort of a, was going to be the sequel to Close Encounters. So at what point did Herman House become the the influence? There's no confirmation of this, but people believe that Spielberg had read the newspaper article because it was a big media thing for a while. And he just came up with the idea, oh, it would be really great to have a family plagued by ghosts. So that so he would have had that idea after he decided to split E.T. in this other film. Before. Night Skies was about that. Oh, so Night Skies was still influenced by Herman House. Yes, but the um, the malevolence was alien, not As opposed ghosts. to spiritual. I see, I see. Yeah. But I didn't know any of that stuff. And I didn't know that the reason he really didn't direct is most likely because he couldn't because of a contract. And Interesting. Yeah. And apparently Toby Hooper was a very kind and gentle director, which is really weird because Texas Chainsaw Massacre is certainly not a kind and gentle movie. Well, and Spielberg's known as that too, right? Yeah. and But apparently he's very accommodating. So he allowed Spielberg to sort of put his touch on it. And it really does have a Spielberg-y feel to it. And I can't stress to you enough, Dan, because... I'm from a different generation than you. What an um, important moment that film was. It was a new look at horror. It mm -hmm. was a fresh take on what up to that point had been basically slasher movies and Frankenstein and monster movies. It was, it's like Close Encounters was. For the first time ever, Close Encounters gave us an, uh, the idea that aliens might just want to contact us for 
good reason for just to get to know us and, yeah. you know, to, and, and to initiate contact and to share knowledge and like close encounters. Fuck. I can't begin to tell you what, how we felt walking out of that movie as young men. We were, our minds were blown because we hadn't seen anything like it. It was so new. And the same thing with Poltergeist and the same thing with Jaws and the same thing with a lot of the movies that he did, even um, Indiana Jones. I mean, okay, we'd seen Flash Gordon and stuff like that, but we had never seen a movie like that. And anyway, Poltergeist, it was a beautiful moment, a moment I'll remember all my life. It it just, it changed. These, the landscape of horror movies changed for me at that moment. And it was just a great moment. The closest I would have had to that would have been, because I, I, like I liked horror movies as a kid, but didn't love them because I found them kind of stupid. The the Friday the 13th, although the first one is, is, is actually a good movie. And the Nightmare on Elm Streets as a kid, I thought it was terrifying. And as you get older, it's like, oh my God, this is bad. But you know what it was for me? It was the Blair Witch Project and The Ring. Okay. Those were, because I was right probably around the same age you were when Poltergeist came out. I would have been in my late teens, early 20s when those movies came out. And they they took horror back to another level. Yeah, well, Blair Witch was one of the first first person movies I'd ever seen that found footage style, which has been milked to death, and people have to now it has, stop. and it also draw drew from sort of the Jaws sort of thing where you never actually see the thing yeah. that's that hunting them, and that makes it all the more terrifying, right? And when you said um, you said the ring, yeah, I mean that was influenced by that Japanese movement, Ringu. right? The horror movement, which was so weird. I would put. Blair Witch and Paranormal Activity together. Well, that came up a little bit later though, right? Paranormal yeah, but activity. it was equally important. Can I tell you a funny Paranormal Activity story? Absolutely. So rented it with uh, my wife. Your current wife? Oh yeah, your only wife. What am I saying? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so stupid. We uh, rented it and she got so freaked out. She said, I can't, I can't do this. So she left and went upstairs. I started watching it. And I went, I don't, I can't do this alone. Like, this is too upsetting. So I called our good friend, Jeff. Of course you did. Who drove all the way from his house. And this is like late at night too, at this point, it's probably like 11 o'clock. And he came and we started over at the beginning and then we watched it together. (laughs) Oh, do you know what my favorite part of that movie is? Those weird tracks in the flower. Yeah. Remember those weird tracks and they're like animal weird. Yeah. So scary. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he had to leave in the middle of the night and go home. And I remember him talking about being afraid going home. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I love, Dan, those movies that were like nothing you've ever seen. Right. There's, you know, I was thinking about the other day, Moulin Rouge was like that when I first saw it. I'm like, I still love that so much. What is this crazy Mm -hmm. movie? It was like, it was sort of like the crowning jewel in that whole music video generation. It was like the last great, you know, scream of that whole era of music video. It was like incredible to be, to be in the theater and watch that movie. Mm. Uh, well, all of his, his films are. Baz Luhrmann. Yeah. I didn't like Romeo and Juliet. I thought it was gross. I still love it. Yeah. Okay. Well. And his new Elvis one is coming out. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, I don't want to babble on about movies because we always tend to we do that. We will but- do. We, I think we will. Let's do. Let's make a, a, a sworn promise on this recording that one day, maybe soon, we will have a side project. Might be a limited Or why run. do we do a thing called weird movies? Like a special episode. We could do Weird that. cinema. And we'll talk about weird movies because all the movies I watch are weird generally. 
Well, you don't like anything that anyone else likes, including dolphin movies. But and horse movies too. I'm not. I don't really care. Like Black Beauty and all that stuff, or any movies about horses. What about animals in general? I love animals. I mean, I have an animal. No, no, but animal movies, like dog movies. Oh, I liked um, We Bought a Zoo. Oh, oh, yeah. It was so sweet. Okay. It's a nice movie. It makes a dog's purpose. Is that a movie? Yeah. The dog that keeps getting reincarnated. You know, when I was a little kid, um, I think I've mentioned this before. My parents used to buy me books for the long drive to Florida when we go to our condo in Florida. And one year they bought me um, All Creatures Great and Small. And I sat in the back seat and cried. I wept. Yeah. There's that one where the old guy has to put his dog down. And I honestly, I was so sad that I thought I was going to have to be tranquilized. It was so heartbreaking. And I, I just, I, oh, oh, yeah. Anyway, I still to this day remember lying in the back seat of our giant car because it was a giant car and just weeping over this book, James mm-hmm. Harriet, All Creatures Great and Small. Still not recovered from it. Anyway, Dan, that's my story. Was it okay? I loved it. It was very different. At a left yeah. field. Yeah. Love, love letter to a movie. And like I said, the curse of Poltergeist is a well-known thing. Well, I didn't know it. So again, you make me feel silly because I, oh, everyone knows about Jojo Simmons. I don't know who Jojo Simmons is. And then I feel dumb. Okay. Well, it's because I'm a fan of the movie and there's some really good fan sites out there. Oh my God. There's one that actually has the shooting schedule. Like you can look at what they shot each day. That's too much. Well, some people like that shit. Okay, Dan, as always, dear listener, we thank you for joining us on this journey. We encourage you, please, we humbly beg you to spread the word of the weird. This podcast is um, a labor of love. And the more listeners we get, the better we are and the happier we are. And that's all we ask from you. We just ask for your support. Yeah, that's it, okay? Support us. Yeah, fuck. All right, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Uh, You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Please feel free to share with us uh, any comments about potential future shows or if there's something that you um, you particularly enjoyed about an episode, let us know. And uh, we we love that feedback uh, that we receive from you. It lets us uh, know that we're uh, we're making that connection. And as Riley has mentioned uh, in the past, that that's that's really important to us because this is a labor of love. We're not getting a dime, not yet. not a cent. So we're good with that for now. <laughs> oh, I sound bitter. Oh, well, whatever. Yeah, okay. I guess that's it, Dan. So have a good rest of your weekend. And folks, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week for another episode of The Weird. Good night, everybody. Poltergeist. It knows what scares you. <laughs> <laughs>